Sea Power, the podcast from the Center for Naval Warfare Studies at the U.S. Naval War College in Newport, Rhode Island. Our program showcases leading thinkers and doers in the art and practice of maritime strategy and operations, broadcasting their cutting-edge insights around the world and to all the ships at sea. I'm Isaac Carden, and I'm delighted to host today's conversation with Admiral James Fogo, who retired from the United States Navy in 2020 after distinguished service as a submarine officer including as commander of U.S. Naval Forces Europe and Allied Joint Forces Command. We are also joined by my esteemed colleague, Dr. Michael Peterson, director of the Russian Maritime Studies Institute and professor here at the Naval War College. We're gonna to focus today on Russian power in the Black Sea and the Arctic Ocean, addressing some of the major threats and opportunities posed by Russian naval forces in these critical maritime theaters. The views presented here do not reflect the official positions of the Naval War College, the Department of the Navy, or the Department of Defense. Well, it's a real honor to be here today to discuss all of these issues with you, Admiral Fogo. It's really great to be to be talking with you again. I know lots of people have a lot of interest in the things that you have to say about this region. Uh, I will start by offering what is probably my favorite short story about our relationship that goes back to middle of 2016, when I found myself in your office as commander of Sixth Fleet, and I was brand new in this job as director of, of a brand new Russia faculty position here at the Naval War College. And I said, Admiral Fogo, what is it you'd like to see the Naval War College do? And you said to me, why don't I have a Russia Maritime Studies Institute? So that was something I promptly came back to the Naval War College and said, well, I don't want to do that ever. I land in Newport and get called into the president's office, and he says, I've got great news. I'm setting up a Russia Maritime Studies Institute. So I'm pretty sure that you're to blame for this, whatever happens. I like to say that RMSI is the house that Fogo built. So um, whatever goes right about it, I think, is probably on you, and whatever goes wrong about it is probably on me. But in any case, um, I, I really am interested in hearing some of your thoughts on what's been happening over the last couple of years here. So uh, welcome, and thank you for joining us. Mike, uh, thanks very much. And uh, you're just too humble. I am proud of the fact that uh, you have taken the Russian Maritime Studies Institute to the heights that it's at today. For many, many years in my affiliation with the Naval War College, I marveled at the China Maritime Studies Institute. And I was very happy to see that on the other side of the world, another potential adversary and now certainly uh, involved in the war in Ukraine, Russia, uh, has an institute like yours to study their moves, to study their strategy, to study the uh, future of that country as we try to figure it out for peace and stability, uh, not just in Europe, but on the African continent. And Isaac, thank you very much for the uh, invitation to come to the podcast Sea Power today. I absolutely love the name. Here at the Center for Maritime Strategy in Washington, D.C., we are advocates for Sea Power. And I certainly appreciate the opportunity to chat with both of you. And gentlemen, let's uh, just go on a first name basis today. Jamie, Isaac, and Mike will make it a little easier. Well, that sounds good to me. Uh, thanks, Jamie. So why don't we get right to it? You know, your your experience as a senior officer operating against Russia goes back a, a long way, quite a long way. I won't say how long, but I wonder how you might characterize uh, the development of Russian power, especially in the regions we're talking about now, right, in the Black Sea and the Arctic Ocean, especially over the last decade. You've had a front row seat to a lot of this and have been charged with competing against the Russians at sea. 
for quite a bit of this time. And I wonder how you might characterize the threat over the last decade and what your general thoughts are about the sort of growth of Russian maritime power in the last 10 or so years. Well, thanks, Mike. And, um, you know, no bones about it. I did uh, 40 years of active duty, graduated from the Naval Academy in 1981, retired at the end of 2020. I was a cold warrior. I hit my first submarine, uh, USSC Devil, in 1983, and we headed to the Mediterranean and up north uh, to the Arctic Circle, in fact, to the North Pole. And uh, I'll reserve some of that commentary for later in the podcast, but I've been doing this for a very long time, and I've watched the Russians throughout the Cold War and throughout the post-Cold War era, the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989, the uh, disintegration of the Soviet Union in 1991. During that third battle of the Atlantic, the Cold War, not a shot was fired. It was a cost-imposing strategy. We brought them to their knees. Gorbachev came to power briefly, and uh, Russia tried to figure out its way forward. And we were mistaken in thinking that there was going to be a peace dividend. Famous quote and uh, article and later book by Francis Fukuyama, The End of History. It really wasn't. And uh, the Russians came back, and they came back strong. Uh, but what we found throughout this latest crisis in Ukraine is that the Russians are not 10 feet tall. I think we gave them a lot more credit than credit was due. And in particular, we're talking about the Black Sea and the Arctic today and Russian maritime power in both of those places. And I actually think there's a little bit of uh, apples and oranges here. And the war in Ukraine has been revealing. I think that the Black Sea is a lot more of a dangerous environment than it was prior to the 24th of February, 2022. And it was uh, pretty dicey before that. I mean, we were running NATO ships and American warships into the Black Sea, being harassed with close flybys and drive-bys by Russian forces. And effectively, during my time from 2014 to 2016, when you and I talked about RMSI, I was the Sixth Fleet Commander, and uh, I watched the Russians strangle Ukrainian ports, particularly Mariupol and uh, Mykolaiv in the Sea of Azov. Now, that was a completely different kind of cat. The Sea of Azov is regulated by a treaty, I think, which dates back to 2003 between the Russian Federation, Putin's Russian Federation, and Ukraine. And Putin's still there, but those Ukrainian leaders have departed. And the Russians never really abided by that treaty from the standpoint of the fairness doctrine. They just wanted control. Since that time, you saw the illegal annexation of Crimea, and essentially the Russians just walked in with the ubiquitous little green men and uh, had a, a referendum, which uh, probably was rigged, and uh, assimilated that vast expanse of Ukraine's sovereign territory for themselves. After that, they built the Kerch Bridge. Putin was the first guy to cross. The Ukrainians tried to challenge them in 2019 with the Mosquito Fleet. That didn't go very well. 27 Ukrainian sailors ended up in one of Moscow's worst uh, prisons and held uh, as criminals instead of as Navy personnel in violation of the Geneva Convention. They eventually were repatriated. But uh, we were very concerned during this period of time that you know, the Russian Navy was strong. After the invasion of Ukraine in 2022, we started to see cracks or weaknesses uh, in that chain. 
uh, first and foremost, the land campaign did not go well because uh, there were no uh, supply lines or sustainment of Russian forces. And uh, the Russians seemed to be a, a one-trick pony. They, they went up the middle, you know, like a football player running downfield. And they got stymied as three or four different armies tried to invade Ukraine from different axes. But there was no creativity on the battlefield, no innovation on the battlefield. And quite frankly, they don't have the same level of uh, strategic prowess as Western powers and Western nations. They got beaten up pretty badly. Uh, they also put amphibious warships in the Black Sea from uh, the Baltic Fleet and the Northern Fleet. They never succeeded in really getting ashore. They were uh, pushed back in Mariupol. They have gone into and been thrown out of Mykolaiv, and they never obtained their ultimate objective of Odessa. They took Snake Island for a short period of time and were pushed off. And uh, that famous gesture by the Ukrainians and uh, words over the radio when Snake Island was attacked had become immortalized in uh, Ukrainian history. There's even a commemorative stamp uh, in Ukraine that portrays the ejection of those Russian forces. And then a real surprise, I think, for everybody is the Russian flagship Moskva was sunk, sunk by two air-breathing cruise missiles that the Russians never credited the Ukraine with having. Now, they took these weapons that were old Soviet weapons and they perfected them and uh, they launched them at the Moskva. And the thing that I found really interesting was if you looked at the reporting from uh, Covert Shores by H.I. Sutton, the pictures that are in his reporting show that the Russians never looked down the threat axis. They never took their uh, radars out of a caged position looking astern and uh, they were hit by a sucker punch by two missiles. Then they couldn't stop the fire. Then they couldn't stop the flooding. They lost the ship. Now that tells you it's a very poorly trained and poorly led Navy. Furthermore, other things have happened recently. There have been airborne drone attacks on uh, the Russian naval base in Sevastopol. There have also been uh, unmanned surface vessel attacks, spectacular video on the internet of these unmanned surface vessels going in and uh, supposedly hitting the next flagship, the Admiral Makarov, uh, in Sevastopol. And as a result, the Russians have started to move naval uh, hardware ships and submarines out of Sevastopol to Novorossiysk. So I would have to tell you that the Russians have not fared well from a naval perspective, and they have not shown that uh, they are a professional Navy capable of fighting a modern-day force or defeating an adversary who has a very effective anti-access area denial strategy. And that's Ukraine with mines, with unmanned systems from the air or from the sea, uh, and with very little Navy themselves. I mean, the Ukrainians uh, scuttled their own flagship, the Hemet Sagadashny, which is an old uh, FSB patrol frigate in Mykolaiv because they didn't want it to fall into uh, Russian hands. And other than uh, Hemet Sagadashny, they had a couple of old island-class Coast Guard cutters and some small patrol craft. And, and so, you know, with very little force at very little cost, they've pushed the Russians back. That does not bode well uh, for the Russian Black Sea Fleet.
Yeah, you know, you're raising a really interesting point here that that I, I think is worth a little bit of exploration. You mentioned earlier that uh, the Russians are not ten feet tall, and I think we've we've learned that, of course, in the experience with Ukraine. Nor is the Russian Navy made up of uh, hundred thousand ton ships, of course, right, so to speak. But the challenge, I think, is that now we're left with this. We have to um, remember that the Russian Navy is also not four feet tall. They're somewhere in between, and that's. One of the lessons I think that we've got to sort of pull out of this war is that, at least to my mind anyway, um, while the Russian military has underperformed badly in Ukraine, it's still capable of uh, presenting a pretty significant tactical, operational, even strategic threat to NATO and its adversaries. So I agree with you on on the overall assessment of the of, of the underperformance, but we're in, we're stuck in this position now where we risk underestimating the Russians as opposed to maybe overestimating them previously. Like I agree with you. And, um, you know, when I started uh, my answer to the question, you know, what is the difference between the Russian Black Sea Fleet and the Russian Arctic or uh, Northern Fleets, which is the Baltic Sea Fleet and the Northern Fleet? You know, I said it was apples and oranges, and that's really true. So the Russians have been pushed back and pushed away from Sevastopol to safer havens like Novorossiysk in the Black Sea. And in return, they have taken on board a strategy which is a weakness strategy, and that is using long-range fires. So they, they still have naval vessels at sea. They're firing caliber-class cruise missiles and other missiles into uh, both military and civilian targets, and now using Iranian drones as proxy or surrogates to hit energy infrastructure. So, quite frankly, uh, their attacks on Ukrainian energy infrastructure have been relatively successful. They've shut down uh, power grids across the country, and this is winter and it is cold. People cannot heat their homes, they cannot cook, they cannot communicate. It's horrible, but that is the strategy, a standoff strategy that the Russians are using because they cannot get ashore uh, with amphibious assault teams. They cannot get close to the shore because of Ukraine's A2AD strategy. Now, if you go to the Arctic and you look at uh, the strengths of Russia in the Arctic, the first big distinction is this is not a kinetic fight in the Arctic. Nobody is shooting at one another. But the Russians have uh, a very capable Northern Sea Fleet, and they have some ships, uh, corvettes and frigates, and submarines in the Black Sea Fleet, or in the uh, Baltic Sea Fleet. They are operating in earnest in the Arctic, and the Russians consider uh, the Arctic as their lake. They consider themselves a hegemon in the Arctic. You know, if you go back to uh, 2007, that's 15 years ago, uh, Russian mini-subs planted the uh, Russian Federation flag on the bottom of the Arctic Ocean. And we thought that was a lot of uh, bluster and bravado, but it was merely the beginning of what is a Russian strategy in the Arctic, and that is uh, that they want to maintain control over the Arctic. Now, the Arctic is an international body of water. The ice is receding, so there's more blue than white. In other words, more uh, open ocean than ice. And we do have a significant climate change problem up there. But uh, the fact that climate change is a factor has opened up transit routes uh, for uh, civilian shipping and military shipping. And the Arctic is becoming more and more militarized every day. There are tremendous gas and oil reserves up there, and that's what the Russians are interested in. They want to capitalize on that. In fact, they have taken their case on the 
Arctic shelf to the uh, UN Convention on Law of the Sea, and they have pled that case from both a territorial and, and scientific argument. And actually, they have done a good job, and it's probably going to come out with an outcome in their favor. And I think that's fair. Uh, but the Russians are a presence to be reckoned with in the Arctic. They have attempted to exercise uh, hegemony and control over the northern sea route. Uh, for instance, if you were to select the northern sea route, and it's still pretty icy, there's a lot of uh, icebergs and uh, interference up there, but at certain times of the season, you can uh, make the passage over the top of the pole through the northern sea route. The Russians demand 45 days notice. They demand that Russian pilots ride whatever ship, whether it's a warship or a commercial ship, uh, during that uh, transit passage. They demand that uh, Russian icebreakers be an escort. And uh, they also demand a fee. And if these uh, prerequisites are not met, uh, then they threaten to take more aggressive action towards somebody who tries to run that gauntlet. And quite frankly, I think that's a violation of transit passage, and the U.S. will never stand for that. Now, the good news is that uh, we have two new Arctic nations coming on board NATO, that's Sweden and Finland. And if you look at the makeup of the Arctic Council, there are eight nations, including Russia. Seven of eight of those nations will soon be NATO members in a like-minded block that will push back against uh, some of these uh, ideas and um, operating concepts that the Russian Russians have and try to uh, uh, compromise in some kind of a uh, a reasonable agreement. But uh, I'm not sure that there is anything reasonable between the West and Russia right now in light of the fact that there's a big kinetic fight going on in the Ukraine. Let me stop there for your comments. Well, thinking of that kinetic fight, I wonder if we can come back up north to the Arctic in a moment, but take a minute to dwell on the circumstances in the Black Sea and I'd like to invite you both to speak a little bit about the exercise, the tabletop exercise that you conducted some time ago, trying to understand the Russian interference with grain shipments through the Black Sea and some of the insights you generated from that. We understand that that agreement has been renewed, but it is somewhat of a tenuous, tenuous situation. What are some of the dynamics there? What is Russia trying to accomplish and what options do the United States and its allies have to maintain the free flow of vital grain shipments through the Black Sea. Yeah, thanks, Isaac. The Black Sea TTX that we co-sponsored with the Center for Maritime Strategy this past summer kind of grew from this idea that there were a lot of what I thought were pretty wild ideas being thrown around about uh, you know NATO or the United States or a coalition of the willing steaming into the Black Sea and uh, conducting counter blockade operations or something along the lines of uh, you know Operation Earnest Will from the 1980s where we were escorting oil tankers except in this case we would escort uh, bulk food carriers. I thought that was all a, a bit of wild speculation. So what I wanted to do is get together a team of experts from across various different communities, including naval warfighting communities, merchant uh, shipping experts, and some senior strategists, people who think about global strategy and naval strategy, to talk about what the options might be. And um, I think the big takeaway from that for us was that Russia's really in the driver's seat here in terms of when the deal will break and how long the deal uh, might last. And there are some things that have surprised me out of that. But 
Jamie, maybe you've got some other thoughts on that. I've got some questions for you about that as well. I've been wondering what you think about this uh, TTX now that we know a little bit more about what's what's been going on here over the last several weeks. Well, thank you, Mike. And the first thing I'd like to say is it was a brilliant idea of yours to run this TTX uh, shortly after the uh, grain deal was signed uh, with Russia and Ukraine through the interlocutor of the country of Turkey, a NATO ally and a NATO member, uh, because there were uh, lots of uh, cracks in the armor and things that could go wrong. And so you brought us together at uh, a wonderful place to think outside of a national capital area where everything's busy and the phone is ringing all the time to the Naval War College, where people have been thinking about uh, strategies, uh, treaties, things that happen on the sea uh, over time since well before Alfred Thermahan. And so it was a great opportunity to sit down with the subject matter experts from commercial shipping, with the professors from the War College. And furthermore, you brought in students, active duty students, commanders and captains who are sailing on these ships, who are taking a break to come to the War College and, uh, and think just like you and I were trying to do in that room, and then give us the feedback straight from the deck plate and the bridges of these ships that they had just operated on and that they were going back to. And that's an important perspective to have. So I think the whole thing was well-crafted and well done. And, and kudos to you and your team at RMSI and the folks at Naval War College uh, for allowing us to partner with you. It was a real privilege. Now, that said, you know, going into this thing, I was enthusiastic because the first question I was asking myself is, okay, so they've signed this grain deal, but uh, the way it was signed was interesting. Uh, Ukraine would not shake the hand of a Russian, and the Russians would not shake the hand of a Ukrainian. So this was done in two different kind of memoranda of agreement between Turkey and Russia and between Turkey and Ukraine. And so there was a deal, thanks to Turkey being the interlocutor. And there's a lot of criticism of Turkey out there and particularly of President Erdogan, and a lot of it is uh, warranted and justified. But I maintain, as I always have, that Turkey is a member of the alliance, a member of NATO, and uh, much better to be a member of NATO than not to be a member of NATO. That said, they have a foot in many camps. They talk to the Russians, they talk to the Chinese, they talk to the Iranians, and they talk to other Gulf Cooperation Council members. And so there is value added there because uh, there's a way to message some of these other folks that we don't talk to uh, through the country of Turkey. From the beginning, my question was, so if this falls apart, what is plan B? And you know, on day one, when we went into this thing, that was the burning issue that I wanted to get out of the TTX. And uh, one of the problems is that this was put together quickly because people were starving and there was a cry foul from uh, Western nations and from uh, underdeveloped countries around the world. Like, what are we going to do without this grain? 40% of the world's wheat production, you know, sunflower oil, which makes uh, baby formula and barley come out of Ukraine. It's always been the grain belt. It was the grain belt for Stalin. It's been the grain belt for other Russian leaders and premiers over time. And it's been a profitable industry for them. And now Ukraine's a sovereign country and they're feeding 40% of the rest of the world. And, you know, these grain stuffs are going away. So what are we going to do about it? So uh, put together quickly with some assistance from the UN Secretary General and the UN 
uh, Mr. Guterres, who had an opportunity to talk to Putin, talk to Erdogan, and talk to uh, Zelensky uh, all within the same week. And they struck a deal. The deal was benign to the threat of mines. And as I said earlier, uh, Ukraine has done a very good job in anti-access aerial denial by mining the approaches to their sovereign territory. The Russians have mined uh, areas in the Black Sea, and they have been accused of releasing mines in the Black Sea. And there is a lot of credible evidence that that has, in fact, happened. And so these mines are floating around out there, and ships are driving along what's known as the Green Corridor, you know, with a blind eye to the, to the mines. And so as a result, these commercial cargo ships were taking a huge risk. Those mariners on board are taking a huge risk. And insurance rates skyrocketed. Now, as much as I wanted to see the grain flow, I didn't think that that was a well thought out plan. It's very difficult to do what you would call a Q-route by naval forces who actually sweep an area of the ocean of uh, any mines and create a safe uh, corridor because that corridor is so long, you know, from the uh, three points of departure in Ukraine out to uh, the Bosphorus and into the Mediterranean and on to other places, either through the Straits of Gibraltar or through the Suez Canal. But uh, we ignored the mine problem, first and foremost. There's a 120-day renewal, and I never thought we would get there. And in fact, we didn't before. Putin was very upset and accusatory that uh, Western nations outside of Ukraine had some kind of a role in the attack on Sevastopol. And I'll leave that to Western nations to make that determination, whether or not there was uh, any role there. But in my mind, that was uh, clearly a Ukrainian-engineered unmanned surface vehicle attack on Sevastopol. So Putin said, okay, the deal's off. And uh, there was an outcry of emotion from everybody. He said, you can't do this. Oh, we, we figured this was going to happen. And again, I think I sent you an email on that very day, Mike, and said, well, there you go. Uh, that was the reason for uh, the TTX. Now what's plan B? What are we going to do next? Uh, should we get NATO involved? Should we get the European Union involved? Should we get third parties involved? Third party countries that have credible navies, but are smaller, for example, Egypt, Tunisia, Morocco, who are all affected by this uh, grain embargo, or should we go big? Should we go for a country like Brazil, who effectively ran UNIFIL in Lebanon for many, many years? Or should we go for an even bigger country who has a very effective navy? India, you know, part of the quad. Uh, do they want to come in? They talk to the Russians. They talk to the, the countries that are in economic strife that are affected by this embargo. But we didn't have to go there because about three days later, Putin reneged. And uh, he agreed to restore the deal and signed for another 120 days. Why did he do that? I think that some of the things that we said in the TTX in the report and in War on the Rocks actually came to fruition. One was uh, we've got to exercise pressure on the Russian government, particularly Putin, uh, not to abrogate this treaty. And I think that was done through the United Nations uh, effectively and probably even more effectively by the Turks. And I think uh, the Turks convinced Putin that he would be even more of an international pariah and that more sanctions would come and that both he and, frankly, his oligarchs and his country would be hurt uh, if they abrogated this treaty. Now, there's something else there that I think is a fact, and that is uh, I believe the deal was sweetened for Russia by allowing more export of agricultural and fertilizer products, uh, thereby contributing 
some relief to the Russian economy, which is reeling under these sanctions. And so we've signed for another 120 days. Okay, that's fine. Now you go back to the basic premise of why we did the TTX. So if it falls apart again, what's plan B? And I think as a minimum, you know, we've got to get back in there with uh, uh, some kind of presence, a NATO presence, an EU presence, or a flotilla of uh, non-aligned third-party presence to increase stability and security in the Black Sea. Personally, I think it would be a great idea, and it's benign. It's not a threat to the Russians to take this thing that we call the ubiquitous acronym SNMCMG, the Standing NATO Mine Countermeasures Group. NATO's really good at mine countermeasures. They've got a lot of assets up in the Baltic. Frankly, a lot of those assets are being used to patrol and secure pipelines after the, the blowing up of Nord Stream 2. That SNMCMG could easily go into the Black Sea and start sweeping some of these mines. Uh, last thing I'll say is I had a conversation with the Romanian CNO during a uh, symposium in uh, Norfolk at JFC Norfolk at the request of Vice Admiral Dwyer. Dozier Dwyer is running Second Fleet in JFC Norfolk, and uh, Admiral Mihail Panet was over, and he told me the story of a Romanian minesweeper that was uh, the Romanian Navy in Constanta was notified that there's a mine floating around out there, and he said, keep in mind, you know, Admiral Fogel, we have like 300 ships in the Green Corridor sitting off Constanta every day, uh, waiting to transit through the Bosphorus, waiting for the stamp of approval in that uh, command center in Istanbul, which has to have a Russian chop, a Turkish chop, a Ukrainian chop. And, you know, there's, it's like, you know, the engine on the train comes to a grinding halt and all the cars go kaboom, 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 until the caboose finally kaboom. You know, so you got all these ships out there and somebody sees a mine floating around. The Romanians get underway, bad weather, nighttime conditions, young guys operating the ship, brave, heroic, and they go out to try to get this mine. They find it and it hits them and it blows their ship up. Nobody was killed, but the ship's out of commission. They got it back into port. They need help. And I think the S and MCMG is the right answer. That's part of plan B. So uh, let's get on with it. Now that the key the linchpin there are the Turks. They control the Montreux Treaty. They can allow permission for that MCMG, SNMGMG to go in there and do its job. That's not a threat. You know, minesweepers don't have heavy weapons. They're not going to go attack a Russian ship. They're going to sweep mines and they're going to make it safer for everybody. So that's my two cents. Uh, back to you, Mike. Yeah, thanks, Jamie. There's a lot to chew on there. One of the things that was interesting, I think, about this TTX was some of the some of the dialogue that happened even afterwards. You know, we I know you're aware we got a little bit of pushback on some of the conclusions about when this deal might be dissolved by the Russians. And you know, one of the things that people were saying was that, you know, that this deal will will go on in perpetuity because Russia gains some economic benefit from it. And you know, I'm a little skeptical of that. I'm not so sure that you know economic benefit is is what Russia's motives are. Although I'm willing to stipulate that that's a really important critical piece for them now that they've sort of been faced with these major sanctions. Right, the states don't go to war just for economic reasons, or they don't make decisions just because of economic reasons. But I think you're right in that now that's become more of a more of a sort of critical point. I will say though that I I still think that this deal can live. The Russians are able to sort of kill this deal when they think it, the time is right. 
that's sort of balanced in my mind against this idea that, boy, I'm really surprised how much how much influence the Turks have been able to wield. That is a has been sort of a surprise to me in the in the time since we held that TTX and since we uh, since we published that report. There's a lot of sort of dynamic interplay here. And I'm struck by how we're headed back to square one where we were this summer, where we do need to think about where uh, we're going to go if this deal falls apart. I still think the Russians can allow it to do so, particularly as the um, fall grain shipments begin to slow down. Um, they have less and less reason to sustain the deal. But anyway, I think we ought to we ought to move on to the Arctic a little bit here. Yeah, thanks. Mike, and yeah, I would like to turn our gaze north a bit and consider not just the European powers, but also one particularly interested East Asian power, specifically China. You addressed this strategic competition, this interaction among the United States and Russia and China in the Arctic in a piece that you recently wrote for the Naval War College Review. And I was wondering if you could try and lay that out for us a bit. How does Russia view this Arctic domain? How does that interact with the way that the United States views it strategically? And how do you view the the more recent entrance of China as a self-proclaimed near-Arctic power? What does that strategic competition look like from your vantage? So, Isaac, thanks. Uh, You know, great uh, set of questions. You know, first and foremost, I think what we have to remember is that the United States is an Arctic nation, and we are one of the eight Arctic nations that have a legitimate claim to being an Arctic nation. We'll talk a little bit more about China in a minute. But Alaska borders uh, uh, the Arctic, and the Bering Sea is a key passageway to the Arctic at certain times of the year. You know, we talked earlier of uh, the melting ice, more blue than white. Uh, That's real. You know, I've I've been to the North Pole on submarines, uh, and I've operated in the Arctic Ocean pretty much uh, all throughout my career. I've been an East Coast sailor, a Cold Warrior, and then a commander of submarine groups, uh, Sixth Fleet, Naval Forces Europe. And uh, my first trip to the Pole was 1985. Uh, My second trip in a submarine in command of Oklahoma City, which didn't have a hardened sail, so it couldn't bust through the ice like we did on USS Sea Devil in 1985. But that command tour took me to the heights of the Arctic Ocean in 2001, 16-year hiatus. Three or four observations. One, less ice, more water. Two, when we surfaced in a polynia between the pack ice and the marginal ice zone, uh, which is uh, not at the pole, but not far from the pole, uh, the first thing I noticed when we went topside was there were a lot of plastics in the water, bags and bottles you know, milk bottles and things that come up through the Gulf Stream or are dumped over the side by uh, mariners who don't care about the environment. So we have an environmental problem. And the third thing was the Russians were back. Post-Cold War, you know, no peace dividend, and they're operating up there in earnest with their submarines. I mean, the Arctic Council likes to say, well, we don't want to militarize the Arctic. I think the Arctic has been militarized since Commodore Peary and uh, Admiral Byrd went up there you know, back at the uh, early part of the 20th century. And we've been there ever since. I've been up there on submarines. I've been up there on warships. You know, I operated in Exercise Trident Juncture with 50,000 personnel under arms on 70 ships, 265 aircraft in the Arctic Circle, above 66 North in defense of Norway. So it is militarized, and we need to accept that fact. You know, the United States has a big stake in the Arctic, and we have 
strategies uh, like the Blue Ocean strategy from the Navy that came out in 2021. And we also have the brand new U.S. government Arctic strategy that replaced the last one from 2013. We've been working on that new strategy since 2017. And effectively, it has, you know, four pillars. One is security to deter threats to the U.S. homeland. And of course, Alaska as a uh, dissociated state is right up there in the heart of the Arctic region. It, it recognizes climate change and environmental protection as challenges and problems. And, uh, you know, the U.S. government wants to partner with uh, Alaskan communities. We've got a new Ted Stevens Center up there named after Senator Stevens, who was passionate about the Arctic and about his home state of Alaska. And uh, the point in the strategy is that we've got to take care of the indigenous populations up there, ensure that we stimulate the economy and that we take care of the ecosystem that is the Arctic. And so pillar three of that strategy is stable and sustainable economic development, uh, not just for us, but for others that are interested, partners and allies up there. And then international cooperation and governance. Governance is important. So following the rules, the norms, standards and institutions that we've agreed to since the end of World War II in how we operate both at sea or on territories that are contiguous to states or territories of the United States, Canada, North America, and figuring out how we can all coexist in the same space, you know, which is crowded with eight Arctic nations, including Russia. And so I think the Russians have a different perspective. You know, I talked about the Northern Sea Route and uh, their view of the high north as uh, Russia's lake. Oil and gas, the continental shelf, are important to them. That's uh, a huge boon for their economy right now under incredible strain. And uh, as a result of that incredible strain from international sanctions, I think the Russians are going to be more aggressive and take more risk in their relationship with the seven other Arctic nations, the Arctic Seven, who will eventually all be members of NATO. And with that risk and those aggressive tendencies comes, you know, the threat of some kind of untoward incident up there. And so we've got to guard against that. And I think our, our strategy does a good job, uh, our U.S. government strategy of spelling that out. But the one problem I see since the Arctic strategy came out earlier this year is that you have to put resources to that strategy to make it work. And when you look at the difference between Russia's capabilities in terms of icebreakers, you know, something like 56 and a number of them are nuclear powered to our one icebreaker and our program for three or four polar security cutters, which we allocated funds for in 2019, but we won't complete construction on the first one until 2026, delayed three years due to COVID. It probably won't deploy until 2030. That's a 10-year acquisition program. And we just don't have the time to throw away. We've got to act now. And so we've got a good strategy. Let's put some resources to it and let's move out. Let's put the foot on the accelerator and move out smartly. Uh, because the longer we delay, other nations like China are going to move into the Arctic. And sooner or later, they'll, they'll have a foothold there and they'll be doing things that we don't like. And uh, we will have been blind to it. Back to you. One of the things I think that's really interesting that, that Jamie is pointing out is that Russia's really on the horns of a dilemma in the Arctic now, right? That 
war in the Black Sea has actually given Russia a challenge in the Arctic Ocean on some level. That's because I also think that uh, the, the Chinese are going to be looking to extract concessions in exchange for their support of Russia's war against Ukraine. And I think one of those areas in which China is going to be looking to extract concessions is in access to a lot of these um, areas in the Arctic. And Russia is going to be wary of that. And that, of course, is not in NATO's interest any more than it is an aggressive Russia presence. Yeah, thanks, Mike. I wanted to go in that direction, too, and kind of shift our our optic a bit to think about that Russia-China dynamic. And I know looking at this from Beijing's perspective, they've been frustrated over the last decade or so in their efforts to get more involved in the Arctic, in infrastructure, for example, in Russia, in ports and LNG, and in resource exploration. And I'm curious, Jamie, if you can help us think a little bit about how Russia is likely to respond to this and, and how what their pain points are with respect to China. It seems like Russia is not really in a position to say no to China on these issues the same way they were before. What do you anticipate that uh, relationship looks like moving forward? And speaking of resources and the, the resources that we have to devote to this, it, it bears noting, and in fact, you noted in your piece that China is putting a lot of resources against its Arctic capabilities and its Antarctic capabilities, for that matter, uh, in the form of icebreakers, but also uh, in the form of uh, marine scientific research and a number of other capabilities that could be quite significant in that domain. Yeah, Isaac, thank you. And uh, Mike, thank you for that uh, commentary. Uh, I'll say this about China. You know, China is a rising power. You know, today we're seeing fascinating things happen in China, inside its borders, uh, with regards to some of President Xi's authoritarian rules and edicts with regards to COVID. You know, this is uh, hearkening back to the days of Tiananmen Square as people protest the lockdown and the other tragic things that have happened, you know, fire trucks that can't get to apartment buildings because of lockdown and people die and just unacceptable. And uh, they have not reached what, you know, I think is herd immunity. I don't see a lot of people wearing masks nowadays around the United States of America, and I'm happy about that because our vaccines worked, and China hasn't done that. So they've got some serious problems to deal with domestically, but at the same time, the Arctic is important to them because it's the last bastion of completion of Xi's vision of one belt, one road. So as you depart from China and uh, you uh, voyage into the Indian Ocean, they can stop in Gwadar and Pakistan. And then they can move into the Red Sea to the port of Djibouti, where they have built a base called Dorlay. I watched them do this in three years. Absolutely amazing. They poured millions of tons of concrete. We have a base called Camp Lemonye down there in the Horn of Africa. It's uh, one of our mainstays in East Africa to support our ships and our sailors as they're operating out there in the Indian Ocean and the Fifth Fleet AOR. And China realized that was important, so they convinced the Djiboutian government to allow them to put a base there. And that base is now capable enough to receive a Chinese aircraft carrier and then proceed uh, through the Suez Canal into the Mediterranean and to the port of Piraeus in Greece, where uh, commercially the Chinese have taken over operations of that port. They've made a lot of money for the Greeks, but they also have control over uh, who comes in and who goes out. And they can certainly stop there for a break before they proceed out of the Straits of Gibraltar and up north. What do they have in the north? They don't have anything in the north yet. 
They have pursued Denmark, Greenland, part of Denmark, and Norway with cash to try to buy uh, an SPOD, a seaport of departure up there, unsuccessfully. And now they have this special relationship with Russia. China markets itself, and she has said that China is a near-Arctic nation. Well, I have to tell you that when you do the math and the geography and you look at it, the closest point of land from China to the Arctic Ocean is about 900 or 1,000 miles. And so I, I go back to uh, closer to you up in New England, Senator Angus King in Maine, who said, if China is a near-Arctic nation, that must mean the state of Maine is a near-Caribbean nation. I love that quote, and that's very true. That's not going to deter China from continuing to do what they do to court members of the Arctic Council, the Arctic Seven, and Russia. And, you know, cash is king in all of this, and China has a lot of cash. And so they can buy influence and buy places and ports to complete one belt, one road. And they'll try to do that with Russia. Russia is becoming fast, becoming the junior partner here. Uh, it's worthwhile going back to Samarkand in uh, Uzbekistan just a couple of months ago when President Xi came in and Putin and Xi talked about the war in Ukraine. And she poured cold water on Putin, and he even admitted it in his press conference. I was surprised by that. Uh, she also told Chancellor Scholz from Germany that uh, he was not supportive of Putin's rhetoric and wished he would stop the rhetoric of use of a tactical nuclear weapon. So clearly, Russia has been put in its place. And she is interested in energy resources too, and there's a lot of them in the Arctic, and Russia is trying to husband those resources and carefully manage those resources because that's cash for the Russian economy. And if she is interested, the Russians have got to be concerned about that. I don't think that this relationship is a very rosy relationship or one that's going to last 100 years between uh, Russia and China. You can call it whatever you want, a friendship, an alliance, but the two countries are really frenemies. They have uh, the same interests for their burgeoning populations, uh, particularly China. And for China, it's energy and food to keep you know, a billion and a half people happy while they're riding in the streets. And uh, that means they'll do whatever it takes, at whatever cost, to maintain the sanctity of the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, so they need that gas and oil, and there's a lot of it up in the Arctic. If I was the Russians, I'd be worried about that. I'd be very circumspect about any agreement with Xi Jinping or the Chinese Communist Party. And I think Putin is smart enough to know that. He's a very cunning individual, and he's a very transactional individual. And quite frankly, say whatever you want about him, so far, he's predictable, which means he's probably a rational actor. He's a war criminal, no doubt about it. Uh, he illegally invaded Ukraine, but when he got hit hard, he threw more troops at the problem, got hit again, he withdrew. And uh, in terms of uh, use of a tactical nuke, uh, there's a lot of bluster and a lot of rhetoric, but that's died down. He knows that means war with NATO, war with the world. He can't afford that. Sanctions are crippling. So in that regard, he's been rational. So he's got to be circumspect and rational about the relationship and cautious about the relationship with China. Furthermore, China hasn't given him any war material. They've given him uh, you know, humanitarian non-kinetic aid for the war, but they haven't passed, as far as I know any bullets uh, or any rounds. That's coming from North Korea and from Iran. And Iran has emerged as an even bigger threat in this whole thing. So a uh, very complex situation, one that we have to watch. And most importantly, in the Arctic, the Arctic Seven, those like-minded seven future members of NATO have to stick together. And we have to stand up to uh, any kind of uh, Russian aggression or uh, you know Chinese uh, uh, encroachment 
on uh, territory that we have traditionally operated in. Last thing I'll say is I see the Arctic as a future proving ground, like an Aberdeen proving ground for testing of weapons. The Russians are uh, operating their new Severodvinsk attack submarine. They are operating the Belgorod, which is a submarine that carries the Poseidon dual-use nuclear-powered torpedo. This torpedo is 65 feet long. It's supposed to be able to transit the Atlantic. Putin leaked it himself in a press conference a couple years ago, and uh, that weapon is on that ship, and they're testing it. And it has a mini-sub, which is a threat to our undersea critical infrastructure. You guys live in the headquarters of Alfred Thermahan. He came up with the term sea lines of communication and why those are so important to an island nation like the United States of America and why we must project power, why we must be present, you know, why we must be able to control the sea lines of communication. But the one sea line of communication that Alfred Thayer Mahan never envisioned was the most important one in the 21st century because they were laying those cables at the time of his death. And that is our undersea critical infrastructure, which carries 95% of our market information and our classified and security information across cables over the Atlantic and over the Pacific and all over the world. And if those become threatened, you know, we have a serious challenge and a serious problem, which is the bumper sticker for your podcast. We need more sea power. And let me just leave, leave it there. Couldn't ask for a better closing thought, bringing it back home to the home of Mahan and sea power here in the United States. So just want to take this opportunity to thank you sincerely for sharing your extraordinary knowledge and insights uh, with Sea Power today. To both Admiral Fogo and to Dr. Peterson, we're wishing you fair winds and following seas. Thank you very much. Positions of the Naval War College, the Department of the Navy, or the Department of Defense.